Our Father, we thank you that we can be here in this place to worship the only God, the living God, the saving God, the loving God. We are reminded, Lord, in the days of confusion, such darkness that we live in, there's such fear, fear of death, fear of dying, fear of the unknown. And yet, Lord, we have our Bibles, we have the truth of the Word of God, and we know that there is hope for all who turn to Christ. And so we pray tonight that for believers, you would feed us with the Word of God, and that you would then prepare us to pray together as the people of God. For those who may be here among us who are not believers, whether they be younger or older, may tonight be the night that they are born again, having put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, having repented of their sin, totally surrendering their life to Jesus in Him alone. So, Father, we thank You for Your Word, the Bible. I pray that You'd help me to teach clearly. Give all of us open ears to hear what You would have for us from Your Word. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 16. If you would take your Bible and go to the very end of Mark, Mark chapter 16. Now, I'm going to read verses 9 to 20, but I'm going to give you a caveat before I read it. I'm going to read it and pretty much not even talk about it the rest of the time. Um, I'm not going to preach an expository sermon through this passage. And you know me, I'm a Bible preacher, I'm an expository preacher. But I'm not going to preach an expository sermon through this text. I'm going to tell you why in a couple of minutes as we go through it together. But I want to read it because it's here in your Bible. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 9. Remember last week we looked at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He really, literally, historically rose from the dead. Now, verse 9. You probably have a bracket in your Bible, beginning verse 9, here's what the text says. Now, after Jesus had risen on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen." And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, 
while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs which followed. Maybe you have heard of something that all young kids love to play called the telephone game. The telephone game, maybe you have, you begin this game with a phrase or a word or a sentence and you whisper that to the ear of the person next to you. And then they have to say it to the person next to them. And it goes around in a circle until the last person has to say the phrase. And the whole point is you want to see how accurate that phrase was transmitted through all the people. It actually can be quite, quite funny and quite humorous, especially in the Kirkland household. Well, in Mark chapter 16, and in other parts of the Bible, we have an issue kind of like the issue of the telephone game. It kind of brings us into a whole realm that scholars call textual criticism. It is the careful study of all of the biblical manuscripts so that we can recover the original text of the autograph. We call the original script, the original text that the author wrote, we call that the autograph. And with all of the Greek manuscripts that we have around today, scholars look and compare all of those to try to figure out what the original text was. But after Mark chapter 16, verse 8, do you see there at the beginning of verse 9, there's a bracket in your Bible. There's a bracket. And there's a bracket that encloses verse 9 all the way to verse 20. And you have a footnote in your Bible in the NASB, and it says, Later manuscripts add verses 9 to 20. I think the ESV just has it right there. Or, if you have the NASB, even after verse 20, you've got three or four lines of italicized another small ending, often called by scholars the shorter ending of Mark. What does all of that mean? Or maybe there's another example of this in the Bible that you're all aware of. At the end of John chapter 7, verse 53, all the way to chapter 8, there's a, an account of a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Remember that? And the Jewish leaders brought her to Jesus. Well, at the beginning and the end of that account, there are brackets, and you have a footnote that says, later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman. We saw this earlier in Mark chapter 9. When Jesus was talking about how serious your sin is, he tells you to take radical action with your sin because if you don't, there's a great penalty. Those who don't deal with their sin will go to judgment. They will go to hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But two times in Mark 9, 44 and 46, there are brackets. These verses are not found in the early manuscripts. What's that? You ask. I'm going to give you my conclusion and then prove it for the next few minutes. I'm going to give you the bottom line up front. And the conclusion that I want to present to you tonight is that Mark's inspired gospel ends at verse 8. It ends at verse 8 when the text says that the women said nothing to anyone for they were afraid, period. Mark ended his gospel right there. You say, Jeff, how do you know that? 
Well, for a couple of reasons. The earliest and the most reliable Greek manuscripts that we have today clearly show that Mark's gospel ends right here at verse 8. And then there were some early Christian writers in the first couple of hundred years that affirmed that Mark's gospel ended at verse 8. Like Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Eusebius, Jerome, you've got it there in your Bible, or in your, in your notes right there. But yet, but yet, there are various manuscripts that have different endings to the book of Mark. And scholars call it the shorter ending of Mark and the longer ending of Mark. I just read for you verses 9 to 20. That's called the longer ending of Mark. And actually, there's quite a few variations within all of that. In verses 9 to 20, in this longer ending of Mark, clearly, whoever wrote this, it wasn't Mark, I'm going to show you why in a minute, but whoever wrote this talked about the appearings of Jesus in verses 9 to 14, and then he talked about the commission of Jesus to go to all creation and make disciples, and then the ascension of Jesus all the way up into heaven. You say, Jeff, I, I get your conclusion, but how do we think about this? What does it mean for us? We've got our Bible. I, I thought you said it's a reliable Bible. It is. Scribes, as they were called, scribes were those who not only in the Old Testament time, but even through the New Testament, were those who were professional copyists of manuscripts. They didn't have, like you and I do, a copy and paste button. It makes it easy for you and I, and it makes it pretty perfect. You and I can copy things exactly. They didn't have that. And so they were human, fallible men who, when they had one manuscript, copying that onto another manuscript, sometimes they were fallible men. Their eye might overlook a word. In copying, they might repeat a word. Maybe they might skip a line. Maybe they might repeat the same line. Maybe a scribe might even want to add a word to clarify there were all kinds of different things that the scribes and the copyists did because before the printing press was invented in the 16th century, everybody had to copy the biblical text by hand. So, if you're copying the text and you make a mistake and you leave out one letter, the person who copies your manuscript, guess what? They're going to probably leave out that letter. And then the person who copies that, and so they call that families of manuscripts. And there's a whole world of study for smart people that they do all of that. So people copy manuscripts, and then they sent it out across the Mediterranean world. And then they copied more manuscripts, and they sent it out across the Mediterranean world. And the manuscripts were copied and sent out, and copied and sent out. I mean, this exploded in the 1st and 2nd and 3rd and 4th century AD, like a virus, a good virus, a good virus. It was uncontrollable, and it spread like wildfire. But, as men would copy manuscripts from one script to another, inevitably, errors would enter into the text. Now, usually, there's minor. I mean, 99% of the errors are spelling. 
spelling. Maybe there's a word order. Maybe there's a word of clarification. Sometimes scribes might even in the column, like you and I might in our Bible, they might even add a clarifying phrase or a commentary. The next person would put that in the text. But most of them are minor. Mark 16 is a pretty big chunk. That's verses 9 to 20. So the question is, so Jeff, you're saying that Mark's gospel ended at verse 8 and verses 9 to 20 are not inspired. Correct. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm going to give you two reasons why. Now, when we examined this in my doctoral work, I had classes on this and it was way over my head. I struggled so much with this. In the realm of textual criticism... We would go to the libraries and they would bring in all these facsimiles of ancient manuscripts and we've got to examine and compare text with text. And I'm glad there are people who devote their life to that. And I'm glad that it's not me. But there's two main categories that men and women think about in this realm of comparing texts. One is called external evidence and the other is called internal evidence. How do you know if Mark chapter 16, 9 to 20 is really part of the inspired text or not? Well, let's begin with first in your outline, the external evidence, meaning outside the text itself. It looks at the manuscripts that we have. How many manuscripts have verses 9 to 20? How many are there that support a particular reading? And maybe more importantly, where are they from? I mean, are they all from the same region, Israel? Or do they come from Egypt and Asia Minor and Syria and other parts of the world as well. What language? What language are the manuscripts in? There's Latin, there's Greek, there's Syriac, there's Coptic, there's all kinds of languages. But I want to tell you this, and scholars all agree with this, the earliest and the best manuscripts all end at Mark 16 verse 8. They do not have the long ending. So you and I could say, based upon external evidence of the manuscripts, we can say confidently that Mark's inspired writing that he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit ended at chapter 16, verse 8. But there's another examination. That's the internal evidence. That's where you're actually looking at the text itself. And there's four main ways in which you do this internally. There's grammar, vocabulary, style, and theology. Anybody opening their Greek Bible could look at Mark 16 verses 9 to 20 and say, I know one thing for sure. The, Mark, the Greek in this section is not like the Greek in the whole rest of the gospel. So whoever wrote this, it wasn't Mark. The, the, the language is different. The grammar is different. The vocabulary is different. For example, there are 101 unique words in this section that Mark doesn't use before. The style is different. The word order is different. Even the connection in verse 9 is different. It's awkward. It's totally non-Markan, as scholars put it. But there's actually, more importantly some theological issues that we got to deal with. Did you catch some of that when I read this? I mean, verse 9 begins with Jesus rising from the dead, but Mark already said that in chapter 16. 
And did you notice in verse 16 that Mark said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved? Well, baptism is not a requirement for salvation. What about verse 17? Then whoever wrote this said that believers are going to cast out demons. But earlier in Mark 3.15, Jesus only gave that authority to the apostles. And now, maybe one of the most weird, verse 18, you can pick up snakes and drink poison and you're not going to be hurt. We've not done that yet on a Sunday. Nor do we plan to do that. Never, never did Jesus say that before. Never did Jesus teach that before. The theology is different. Now, you have a quote here in your outline at this point by a man named Bruce Metzger. In the whole realm of the science of textual criticism, and it's a huge galaxy of study, of New Testament scholarly study, Bruce Metzger is a well-known name. Here's what he said. Number one... This, verses 9 to 20, was not written by Mark when he wrote his gospel. So when Mark wrote, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he ended in verse 8. But it was a fairly early addition by a 2nd or 3rd century scribe who had a really good intention of trying to smooth out what he thought was a abrupt ending in verse 8. We have here in verses 9 to 20 an early church historical record, but it's not a God-breathed infallible record. So now you have in your, in your outline there what, what um, Metzger said. On the basis of good external evidence and strong internal considerations, it appears that the earliest ascertainable form of Mark's gospel ended with chapter 16, verse 8. And you say, Jeff, I get it. I understand that. That's a little bit too much for me this time of night, but I get it. But can you trust your Bible? Can you trust your Bible? I mean, that's really the, the big question for us. You see, we come now to the doctrine of the inspiration of the Bible. You see, the inspiration of the Bible is that doctrine which teaches that God guided the authors of the manuscripts, the original manuscript, so that they wrote down exactly what God intended them to write down perfectly, accurately, reliably, and unfailingly. Remember that verse, all scripture is inspired by God. It's not every author, and it's not everything he ever wrote. So when we talk about the inspiration of scripture, we're not talking about an author. We're not talking about his ideas. We're not talking about his intuitions. We're not talking about his pen. It's the original manuscript that he wrote when God guided that hand and carried him along so that he wrote exactly what God wanted him to write. We call that, in technical terms in the scholarly world, the autograph. The original work. The original text. We don't have any original autographs anymore. They're not extant. We have a lot of copies, but none of the original autographs exist today. But, before we turn to the text here in a minute, and look at the Great Commission, I want to encourage you with something. Because somebody could look at this, and trust me, there are a lot who do. And they look at all of this, and they try to point the finger and say, your Bible isn't reliable. 
your Bible has errors. How can you trust your Bible? Bart Ehrman is one of the most well-known names. He's a heretic and a very dangerous man. Because he uses this kind of thinking to try to disprove your confidence in the Bible. Well, I want to share with you some encouraging notes. Currently, from the best of my understanding, there are 5,856 Greek manuscripts that we have around today. Dan Wallace was a professor at Dallas Seminary who has done years and years of study in the manuscripts. He said, in the Greek alone, there are 5,800 manuscripts. Now, listen carefully to this. Many of those are fragmentary, especially the older ones, but the average Greek New Testament manuscript is over 450 pages long. Altogether, we have available more than 2.6 million pages of biblical texts available in all the manuscripts. That's hundreds of witnesses for every book in the New Testament. That's a strong witness for your Bible. Now, if there's 5,800 manuscripts in Greek for your New Testament, if you add up other languages that the New Testament was copied in, Latin and Syriac and Aramaic and Coptic and so on, you now have 24,000 manuscripts. Compare that with this. Caesar, the Gallic Wars, 200 manuscripts. Homer's Iliad, 1,000 900. Homer's Odyssey, 500. And yet the Bible, the New Testament, has more than 5,800 Greek manuscripts. Which ought to lead us to a couple of conclusions. Number one, we ought to study carefully the biblical languages. That's my job, to do that faithfully for you. As I study the word, preach the word, and give you the meaning of the text. I'm thankful and I'm praising God for what he has given to me in my college seminary time to know the languages, to study the word of God, to do that hard work for you. But also it should lead us, number two, to a confidence in the word of God. Christian, you ought to know that that English Bible that you have right there is God's faithfully given word so that you can understand it, you can read it, you can memorize it, you can... Know it. You can know God. This Bible is God's true word. It is God's true word. And it also should lead us to this conclusion that God has preserved his word. He's preserved his word like the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've heard of that amazing find in the early 1900s. That fits into the whole realm of study of textual criticism, how God preserved his word. And what we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls marvelously fits what we have in our text. All that to say, your English Bible that you have right there in front of you on your table your English Bible is an accurate translation of the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic text that is the closest to the original manuscripts. Is it, is it a faithful translation? Yeah. Can you trust your Bible? Absolutely. Can you count on it? Can you rely on your Bible? Absolutely. Should we get all up in arms about different English translations? No, because they're all 
translations. King James Version, NASB, NIV, ESV. There's different philosophies behind each, but they're all a translation of the Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. So, in your outline, you have this quote there of a conclusion. The Bible is accurate archaeologically, geographically, historically, systematically, scientifically, prophetically, and it is miraculous because it actually changes your life. Amen? It's written over a span of 1,500 years by more than 40 authors spanning three continents. And get this, it is perfect in accuracy and totally unified in theology. I mean, you, you could apply that to any other religious book anywhere and nothing comes close to what we have in the Word. So the Bible's complete, unified, true. The Bible is alive. The Bible is saving. The Bible is preserved. And Christian, hear something. You never ever, ever need to engage a debate to try to prove that the Bible is true. God doesn't need you to prove the Bible is true. Because the Bible itself is a self-authenticating book. Just tell someone to read it. And it'll change their life. Read it. It is a powerful book. So because the Word of God is authoritative, and because the Word of God is just that, it is God's Word, then we are bound to obey it. We're bound to obey it. What I want to do for the time that remains is teach on the topic that Mark taught on, which was the Great Commission. But I'm not going to do it from Mark's Gospel. In your outline, I show you there that there are four primary scriptures in the New Testament for the Great Commission. If you've ever wondered, what is my job in life? Like, why am I here? I mean, it's kind of a, kind of a big general question. Why am I here? Christian, I know why you're here. And God is about to show you for the next few minutes from his word exactly your role, your mission, your duty, and your obligation until the day God takes you home. Why are you here? What's the purpose and the mission and the goal of your life? Well, we find that in the Great Commission. In John chapter 21 this first place where we see the Great Commission, this is the model of the Great Commission. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to the disciples, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I also send you. That's the model. The Father sent the Son, and guess what? The Son sends you. You have a mission. You have a model. You have an obligation. As the Father sent the Son to do God's will, so the Son has sent you to do His work. Now, in Luke chapter 24, at the end of Luke's Gospel, not only do we have the model, but now we have the message. Well, what do we say to people? What, what, is, what, what is the message that we give? And I, I love how God doesn't leave us up to figuring out on our own. He tells us exactly what the message is. Look at Luke 24, verse 44. 
Jesus said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And here's the message. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And guess what? You are witnesses of these things. Well, that's the message. You think, how in the world am I going to do that? I mean, I'm just Jeff Kirkland. You're, you're just you. We're weak. How are we going to change cities, continents, countries, Societies. How are we going to do that? Acts 1 tells you the means. Acts 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Oh, you can't do this on your own. You need all divine power from heaven at work in and through you as you go and do this commission. But now, let's spend the final few minutes in Matthew 28. Go there with you. Matthew chapter 28. You know this, and I know this, is the Great Commission. The Great Commission. We're going to focus here on Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And we're going to look at the Great Commission in four ways. It's in your outline, and boy, it'd be just so great to... To just know this and memorize it and read it and love it and live it out and pray through it. Because this is our duty as a church. Number one, I want to show you the authority. Look at Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. I mean, you, you bring a professor, bring a judge, bring a president, bring a prime minister, bring an emperor. You, you bring someone who has authority and Jesus has far more authority. That's one of the themes of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has authority over demons. He has authority over the cosmic nature and forces. He has authority in his teaching, authority to forgive, authority to heal. He has authority from God. Get this. Heaven's king has given you a commission. And it comes from the authoritative one. There's no higher order. There's no greater commander. There's no higher authority. This is the king of heaven saying to you and me individually, this is your mandate for life. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I'll tell you how practical this is. There's some tragic phraseology floating around the contemporary Christian world. That you need permission from others to speak the gospel to them. No you don't. There is tragic thinking in our day in many circles of Christianity. That you need to earn the right to speak of Jesus to people. No, you don't. You have the king of heaven and earth saying, here's all the authority you need. Go. Go. 
He is the authority. You don't, you don't need authorities. We don't need officials. We don't need governors. We don't need law enforcement to let us talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to. We have a direct message from the sovereign himself, the authority and the royalty and the sovereignty and the clarity and the gravity is from God. He's the authority. All authority. Number two, not just the authority, but number two, I want you to notice the agenda. The agenda of the Great Commission. Now, look at verse 19, and we need clarity on the agenda. What is the agenda? What are the specifics? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This, Christian, is your life mission statement. Your energy, your life, your conduct, your thinking should be about these verses. The main verbal in verses 19 and 20 is the verb make disciples. That, that's sort of bringing every connecting phrase along. The main engine that is driving everything is make disciples. This must be the center point of our lives, the purpose of our church, the vision of our church. What are we about? We want to be a disciple-making church. Sounds familiar. That is our vision statement. We want to be consumed with making disciples. We want to be all about making disciples. We disciple others. We are discipled by others. We grow on in Christ's likeness as we follow Christ together. And we help others to follow Christ. That's making disciples. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that? I mean, it's a, it's a great agenda. But Jesus, tell me how to do it. In your outline, notice number one. The imperatival force of, you need to go. You can't sit. You can't just do it comfortably with you yourself. Living the way, comfort in the home, not going out, not talking to the lost, and not sharing the gospel. This is go. It's go. We have to go. I think of it like this. The church that does not evangelize is going to fossilize. It's still the mission statement of the church. We have to be a going church. We have to gather to be encouraged, and then we've got to scatter to proclaim. That's what we have to do it. We, we can't just meet together all day, every day, and just fill our minds full of truth. That's great. Who would come to faith? We've got to go. And there's that imperatival command from the authority, go. Second, well, what do you do when you make disciples? You baptize them. Praise God, we're going to have a baptism this Sunday. You baptize disciples in the name, singular, because there's one God, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? Identifying with Christ and with His message. But it doesn't end there. I mean, we're, we're not just into converts. We want followers. We want disciples. 
Christian, look at the third phrase right here in verse 20. Not only do you make disciples by going and you need to baptize, but now verse 20, you got to teach them, that is the new disciples, you got to teach them to obey, to observe, to keep. Look at the next word. All that I commanded. That, that's your job and my job. We are to help one another by teaching one another to obey Christ, to follow Christ. All that he commanded in the word of God. So the great commission disobeyed becomes the great omission. Any church that I think forgets or ignores or sits indifferent to the lost world and proclaiming the gospel to the lost, I think has forfeited its right to even be called a church. Because this is our agenda. I was having lunch with a man not too long ago. I said, what's the purpose of your life? You know what he said? I have no idea. You know what I said? I know what your purpose is. And I took him to scriptures like this. And I said, here's what God wants for you. This is your mission. I mean, this is, this is your life purpose. This is why you're here. If your work is done, he's going to take you to heaven. But you're here, so our work continues. We are to be going, we are to be baptizing, and we are to be teaching as we are making disciples on earth for the glory of Christ. But in your outline, look at what it demands from us. This is why it's so hard. Because it demands a sacrifice of comfort. I think I put it in there. Maybe I didn't. Oh, I did. Okay. Number two, it, it demands the confrontation in love. Some people don't like it. Like a lady I met yesterday at Hope Clinic. Third, it demands urgency and tone. Fourth, it demands death to self-love. Fifth, the Great Commission demands trusting God's providence. Number six, it demands that every Christian play his part and obey together. Hudson Taylor said, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It's a command that must be obeyed. I, I, I really could, could care less about what the world thinks about our church. I know we've got some pretty bad reviews online about our church because we do a lot of evangelism. I get that. I could care less about that. Why? Because our duty is to obey the authority of of the Lord. And he said, go. And there's not anything in here about whether or not people like it or whether or not people even will receive it. We're called to go and to make disciples. And we're called to baptize those whom God saves. And then we are to teach those disciples to obey all that he commands. That's a pretty long life work. Well, how in the world are we going to do that? Real quick, number three. In your outline, we need the assistance. We need the assistance. Where are you going to get this power? And lo, I am with you always, verse 20, even to the end of the age. Oh, it's a great commission, but it's also a great empowerment. Yes, we have a great commission, but you have a great consolation. You can say every day of your life, Jesus is with me. I mean, did, did you hear that? 
Jesus is with me. I mean, how's Africa going to be transformed? I mean, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel has just infiltrated that continent. How is Asia and how's the region of the Middle East going to be transformed? How's Europe, how are the Americas going to be transformed? How's your neighborhood, your street, your family, your relatives? How is this going to happen? You and I need a power. You and I need a heavenly assistance. And verse 20 says, I am with you. Notice the I is the same one who in verse 18 said, All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. That one is with you. He's with you. That's pretty humbling. And here's why it's so humbling. This very reality strips weak, fearful believers from every excuse. I'm an introvert. That's not really my call in life. I don't, I don't want to do that. I'll leave it to the missionary or the elder or the pastor. No. Jesus is with you. He's with you. This is not about personality. It's about obedience. Obedience. And then finally, number four in, in your outline here, the advancement. How is this thing going to go? How is it going to run? How is it going to advance? And just very quickly, at the end of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, raise a whole lot of money and send the money far. <laughs> no. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, what? Pray. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest. Brethren, if we are going to advance in the Great Commission, we have to advance on our knees. Samuel Zwemer said the history of missions is the history of just answered prayer. Look, God is not looking for mightier men. God is looking for prayerful men. God is not looking for your money. He wants your humility. God, God isn't looking for all of our energies. He actually wants your emptiness. He doesn't want all of our programs. He wants our desperateness. Hudson Taylor said, Brother, if you're going to go into that province in China, you better go forward on your knees. That's how the Great Commission advances. That's how the Great Commission advances. So, the question for us as we close is this. What part are you and I actively playing in the Great Commission? Because you and I could say, well, Jeff, I'm not a missionary. I'm, I'm not a pastor. I don't, I don't have the time. I have a full-time job. I'm not, I'm not one of those people that's traveling oceans and going far and wide. Fair enough. In your outline. Number one, prayer. Prayer. We're going to do that here in a minute for our missionaries. Number two, giving. I am so excited for our elder meeting this Sunday morning because probably more than half of our agenda is how can we give more money away. We have a lot of ideas. Really neat. Hold the rope 
while others go down into the well. Not everybody's called to go to the unreached, but you and I can send them and hold the rope while they go to the unreached. Third, contact them. Church members, you know the emails of our missionaries and you can encourage them and write them and let them know you're praying for them. Going, going to the lost, opening the mouth, speaking of Christ, communicating truth, even handing out tracts. You park in a parking lot, put a tract on the car next to you, give it to somebody walking to their car. You go to the gas station, put a tract in the little credit card reader right there. You get a receipt from Starbucks, tell them thank you. Give them a tract. There's a lot of people walking by in your neighborhood walking their dogs. Give them a tract. Disciple making, our obligation is to teach others to obey all that Christ has commanded. A good question, a heart probing question, kind of as we transition and close. So who do you disciple? And who disciples you? How are you engaged in the teaching others to obey all that I command you? I don't say this to busy up your time because for a mother at home, the greatest context for this might be the teaching of her own children. We're all in different seasons of life, but we're all called to teach others to follow. I believe, and hold me to this, the next bullet point, outward-oriented. Yet we want to be upward-oriented, God-focused, and we want to be inward-oriented, loving the saints. We want to be forward-oriented toward heaven, but let's not forget, we need to be outward-oriented. And you know what? The lofts can be rough sometimes, but we love them. We care for them. We want them to know Christ. We will even need to consider the question, Maybe God might call some from this place to be missionaries. One of my regular prayers and the prayers of the elders is that God might raise up from among many of our children the desire and the call and the giftedness to be missionaries. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're younger, older, single, married. Maybe God would have you to go and serve Him around the world. So the gospel of Mark has been a wonderful journey, but the journey has been great because we've seen Christ our Lord. But he calls us to take up our cross for him, doesn't he? What a a wonderful call and duty and obligation it is to live for him. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time in Matthew 28 on the Great Commission. Thank you for the preservation and the purity and the power of your word. Give us such a greater confidence in and a love for and obedience to your word, the Bible. In Jesus' name.